You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Diane Brady. Today, we're speaking with McKinsey partner Shelley Stewart III. He is a leader in our private equity practice, helping clients on growth topics. And now he serves as leader of the McKinsey Institute for Black Economic Mobility. Shelley, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So why are we starting this? Look, the history of racial disparity and systematic inequality has been long studied and well-known in the United States. And it has been brought into particularly sharp focus over the last six months, both in the context of the disproportionate impact on Black Americans of COVID-19 and with respect to some of the social justice issues that we are all facing and discussing as a nation. These challenges are relevant in the U.S. and they're relevant around the world. And we as a firm have long taken as part of our remit the opportunity to partner with our clients across sectors around the world on issues that are particularly tough. And so we believe that we have a place to help on this particularly tough and what some would even call an intractable issue. There's something almost audacious about coming out and saying Black economic mobility. I mean, often when these issues are discussed, it's under an umbrella like financial inclusion. Was there a reason why you felt it was important to see it directly through a racial lens? Absolutely. First and foremost, we know that this issue of mobility does not impact only Black Americans. But we have seen in the data that Black Americans in particular face staggering inequality that is only matched in some instances by uh, the Native American population, at least in the U.S. And so we wanted to be very precise about the group that we were trying to impact. On the economic mobility front, you hit the nail on the head. We wanted to be very clear about what the end goal was, which is to help Black Americans increase their mobility in places where they've faced stagnant mobility for generations. What's changed? Are you hopeful? Yeah, I I am hopeful. uh, But I I think that many folks who are not as close to the history and the data assume that more progress has been made than actually has been made over the last, call it, 150 years. So certainly, if you take the lens of many Black Americans descend from slaves uh, and, and the economic condition associated with that, one would say, yes, we have made progress today. If you fast forward and you look at some of the educational gains, which came around and, and accelerated after Brown versus Board of Education, the data is quite clear that educational attainment has improved for for Black Americans. And so we should celebrate that. That being said, if you look at many of the measures that we look at with respect to economic well-being, whether it be income or wealth, there are huge gaps that have persisted and over various periods of time even grown. You take wealth, for example, today, or at least as of 2016, the median black family had one-tenth the wealth of the median white family. And so from that perspective and that lens, we have not made substantial progress and and there's a lot of work to do. So you've done a lot of work on, for example, black-owned businesses. I know this is a topic you've thought about a lot. 
What are you doing specifically through the Institute? So Black-owned businesses and businesses in general, business ownership and entrepreneurship are a critical wealth driver. And as we know, small and medium businesses are also our job growth engine here in the United States. And the opportunity to increase the number of Black-owned businesses is substantial. Today, Black-owned businesses comprise only 2.1% of U.S. employer firms, while Black Americans make up 13% plus of the population. This this gap is, is an incredible impediment to wealth for Black Americans on the whole. And even where we have businesses, we know that there's a certain level of fragility that's being exposed, for example, by the pandemic. At the outset of the pandemic, we wrote an article, Investing in Black Lives and Livelihoods, where we identified the fact that about 40 to 50% of Black-owned businesses were in the most vulnerable sectors of the economy when it comes to the pandemic. That's before you even adjust for size and revenue and access to credit and some other challenges. So we're trying to take all the challenges head on from how do we get more Black entrepreneurs at the front end of the funnel coming up with business ideas, which by the way, we actually do at a disproportionate clip, particularly Black women. Mm -hmm. How do we ensure that those businesses are being funded, uh, that they have access to credit, that supplier diversity programs in corporate America are supporting those Black businesses. And that comes in the form of research, which we've been publishing. We're also convening various groups. We've done a number of discussions with corporate leaders as part of our institute outreach around this imperative. And we hope to even begin some capability building efforts with Black-owned businesses uh, in the next horizon of the institute. It's interesting because Oftentimes, these issues are discussed when there's a corporate involvement through a bank, for example, or a financial institution will have an initiative. How does McKinsey approach this problem differently? We try to take a a very holistic lens. Certainly, the financial services industry has a huge role to play as we've identified access to capital as being one of the largest impediments to scaling and sustaining Black-owned businesses. Mm -hmm. That being said, there are a number of challenges that are not related to your access to credit or access to capital, whether these are industry selection choices that that entrepreneurs are making, access to to networks and and, and, social networks that help ensure businesses are successful, uh, capability building efforts. And so we're trying to look across the whole journey of entrepreneurship and say, where are there real opportunities for McKinsey, but also in our unique role as a convener of stakeholders from across the public, private, and social sector, how do we bring those groups together and point them in the direction of impact? And so I think we can take a bit of a broader look at that entrepreneurship journey, whereas banks play an important but more defined role in certain parts of that journey. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, you know, you yourself uh, were an entrepreneur prior to McKinsey. Uh, you co-found, I believe, it's called Dreadnought Capital Management. What was your experience as an entrepreneur? Yeah, that's right. So probably wow, looking back now, over, over 10 years ago, myself and a couple of colleagues that I had previously worked with at a bank uh, started an asset management firm called Dreadnought Capital. And we had a diverse partner group in founding that company. And look, I think we had 
unique set of challenges at the time we were starting it. It was coming out of the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to believe that the diversity of our team made us stronger so that when we walked in a room, people said, okay, wow, this is a group that comes with diverse perspectives, but all have top-notch training. And so I, I think we did get the benefit of that diversity. I think that other groups, maybe if you come in with a group of all Black founders, may not have been able to have some of the same conversations that our group had, given the makeup mm-hmm. of our founders. Uh, and I think that that certainly was a benefit. But I think in many ways, if you're a, a sole proprietor or someone trying to kind of grow your company and you're a Black business person, uh, we've got to get people more used to seeing folks walk in the room by themselves that look like me. And so my experience was quite positive, but I also had the benefit of having folks who were not Black Americans on my team mm-hmm. uh, and just a great group of co-founders as well. So I'm curious, you mentioned earlier in the conversation, this confluence of both, of course, the pandemic, which has affected Black Americans disproportionately on multiple levels, and Black Lives Matter. That context, how has it shaped your thinking around the issues? Look, from my perspective, this is not, I I know that the national dialogue has accelerated, but there are plenty of folks Uh, McKinsey included, who have been spending time thinking about this long before this recent pandemic and long before uh, some of the other issues that we're discussing in society. So in in many ways, the content, the problem and the solution space remains unchanged for me. It's more about accelerating the efforts, one, because everyone is watching, right? People are pledging and making commitments to racial justice, providing capital to causes that will help Black Americans. And I don't want to miss that opportunity. So there's there's that piece of it, which is just seizing the moment and the broader interest in the topic. The second thing, which I probably should have started with, is the pandemic has made very clear the deadly implications of continued inequality. The mm-hmm. death rates, the disproportionate death rates of Black, of Latinx Americans is something that we should all be embarrassed about as a society. And much of that, much of these outcomes that we see, whether they be disproportionate outcomes in the healthcare system or health outcomes in the education system, even in the criminal justice system, all link to this lingering economic inequality. And so now we see what happens in the most extreme context and therefore that action, excuse me, that burning platform to act is really, really timely. Often when people talk about issues regarding race, there's a sense of a zero-sum game of like that you're helping one group in isolation, but the cost to the overall economy of these issues is something that I've started to appreciate when you think about the billions, if not trillions of dollars worldwide that is being left on the table by not unleashing the creativity and the economic might of different groups. I mean, can you give me some sense of sort of the broader cost to the economy of not addressing these issues? Absolutely. And I'm so glad that that you bring that up because that the idea of this zero-sum economy is one of the all-time great falsehoods. This, this has been studied. People have looked at the gender parity issue and what that's costing the global economy And people have also looked at the racial and ethnic lens to understand. And 
it's very clear that there is a dampening effect on the economy when you don't have broad participation in productive efforts. We did an estimate in 2019 that suggested the U.S. economy is missing out on the order of one to $1.5 trillion a year in annual wow. just due to uh, economic disparity with respect to Black Americans. Mm-hmm. The way I like to, to think about it is there, there are only a few levers that you have to, to move the economy forward. And n- no matter your school of economic thought, everyone agrees that fostering human capital, investing in, in people to unlock productivity is one of the most available levers we have. And I would purport that Black Americans, and I think the data would support this, have been underinvested in for generations. And so if you have all these individuals who are waiting with all this latent potential, Black Americans have done amazing things and continue to do amazing things in spite of being underinvested in. Mm -hmm. If we can shift that narrative and say, if we can invest more in in, in this group of our fellow citizens uh, in the U.S. and in the U.K. and in Brazil, in all these places, we can unlock productivity and economic benefit that does lift all boats, right? That rising tide will lift all boats. In the U.S., that number translates to eleven to $12,000 of GDP per capita a year if we can unlock that potential. Going forward, what do you see as the immediate challenges that we have to address to create the conditions for success? Let me hit four primary areas, and I won't do justice to all the issues that need to be addressed. The first I'll mention is community development. This is all about the quality of schools and access to public health infrastructure and broadband access, the infrastructure, the nuts and bolts of what helps communities thrive. We need to invest in these in places where Black Americans live. The second is private sector development. And we talked a little bit about this, but entrepreneurship and business formation in these communities, which not only creates wealth for the entrepreneurs, but also creates jobs for people in that community uh, and has other knock-on effects. Three, human development. This is all about employment and skills training. We have to close this gap of employment over a lifetime. We have to close the gaps around pay equity and, and really ensure that when folks are earning income over a lifetime, that that income is the max that they can earn and not some artificially low number because they spend too much time out of the workforce or are paid mm-hmm. too much for what they're delivering. And lastly, financial development, which is all about access to financial products and financial services. And I want to also dispel something that I think is is often suggested, but the facts don't support, which is that by somehow doing you know, mass financial literacy campaigns or you know, teaching people just to save who are, who are Black Americans will, will somehow be the magical unlock. I mean, no question that all Americans- We all had bank accounts, you know, boom, it would happen. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and, and there's no question that all Americans, myself included, notwithstanding the fact that I worked in financial services, could develop and, and benefit from financial literacy. That being said, fundamentally, it is an income issue for Black mm-hmm. Americans. Well, and obviously, we all wear multiple hats. And, and you know, one of the issues that I think about a lot, being a woman, is, is the gender 
lens, you know, is that something that you look at in terms of the conditions and opportunities for Black women versus Black men? Absolutely. There's obviously this intersectionality lens and increasingly and very core to what we want to accomplish with BEM is to ensure that we are inclusive in our efforts around Black economic mobility, recognizing that Black women often face the double ding, if you will, of being Black and also being a woman. And the, and the data bears this out. If you look at the progression data in corporate America, you will see that the, the drop-off from entry level to executive for uh, Black women is substantially larger than it is for Black men, who also mm-hmm. fall at a very dramatic rate relative to white men. That is not because of, uh, and again, let me just spell a couple of myths. That is certainly not because of you know, capabilities, and it is certainly not because Black women are opting out, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it links back to a lot of the different things that, that we've been talking about as a society respect to, you know, to racism and bias and, and lack of sponsorship and support. And so we want to focus on that. Another area uh, that's really important is on this topic of entrepreneurship. Black women are underfunded and undercapitalized, despite the fact that they are one of the most entrepreneurial group, just in terms of the data. They start businesses at a higher clip than you would expect based on their population, and they need to be supported. And we have huge, huge economic implications of not doing so. What is the advice you give people in terms of actually helping to be part of the solution, as they say? There's a a very tactical list of specific things, but if I had to distill down the essence of all of those tactical things, it's about being deliberate about the decisions you make and understanding the implications on equity, whether it is how you recruit, promote, develop, pay, you need to take that equity lens. It's important to understand exactly where the dollars are flowing in your company. And mm-hmm. the, the days of saying, you know, well, we don't want to focus on race because then we're injecting some bias, but that, that hasn't worked, right? They're like, we're not going to focus on it and it will work itself out through a meritocracy has not worked. It just hasn't, right? Because of, again, systematic bias and things like that. So let's be deliberate about the decisions we make. And, if, and then if you take it outside of the four walls of a company and you think about running your business, the products, the services, where you locate your company, the vendors you use, taking an equity lens and just understanding how do the decisions I make help different groups? And if you can take that more deliberate lens and measure, even before you set aspirations or targets, just start with the baseline. And I think it'll be very surprising to most people who are running organizations to actually see that many of the decisions that they take, where they could be impacting certain communities, they tend to flow to you know, not to those groups, not to Black Americans, for example. And again, that just plays out in the data. The public sector has had initiatives such as supplier diversity, vendor diversity. Is that a model that is what we can scale in terms of supporting and growing Black-owned businesses, for example? I think that's a, a very important model, both for the public and the private sector. And you've actually seen 
companies scale. There are a couple of Black-owned companies that I can think of off the top of my head that are billion-dollar revenue companies now that got their start by leveraging and working through some of these supplier diversity government programs. And then they scaled beyond that, obviously, and delivered outstanding products and services. So that is a that is a very big opportunity. The one thing that I will say is we need to be expansive in what we mean by supplier, because it's not just mm-hmm. the supplier of certain services and janitorial services, which is one where we've certainly got examples of Black-owned and, and, and Latinx-owned companies, food services, which is really important. And, and also, we've got some great companies that have done well there. Those should continue to be supported by these programs. But we also need to look at the professional services side and the investment management side. There are Black investment banks and law firms and accounting firms and Black asset managers. We need to make sure that they are part of that broad definition of suppliers that fit into and, and get access to these programs. Sometimes in the U.S., we underappreciate the degree to which race is treated differently. When you, you mentioned the U.K., for example, or even, say, places like South Africa, how, how would these issues be tackled or seen differently? Look, I think at the core, you're right, this is global. And there are certainly going to be unique things in every country. The dynamics around race are different, and some of the challenges are different, and that's something that we will be researching. But at the core of it, things like investing in Black children, right, quality schools, uh, ensuring equal access or equity of access to capital for entrepreneurship, being deliberate in our employment, both recruiting, again, developing, promoting, paying, that there is an equity lens greater participation in traditional financial products and services. These are things that are going to ring true across the board. And so the question will be not the what as much as the how you go and implement these changes in these different regions. And that is something that we hope to uh, develop a very clear perspective on in the coming months. You've done a lot of work here. How does having the Institute alter the nature of the research that you do? I think we'll continue to do the research, but what the Institute allows us to do is to leverage the research foundation to build assets and capabilities that we can help deliver to our clients who are interested in impacting these issues. Mm -hmm. And so we really want to take this beyond the research and convening and get very practical with our clients in the private and the public and the social sector and be able to say, here are the areas that are gonna make the biggest difference based on our analysis. Here's the solution space and some things that we think are going to be high impact. And here's the empirical evidence for why we believe that. And so I really do hope uh, and believe this institute will allow us to move much more quickly to action and solutions and move from what some call a colleague of mine, uh, Jason Wright, who's, who ah. is my original partner on this journey. He's off doing football now. Exactly. <laughs> and admiring the problem to helping us really accelerate towards better outcomes. Now, you mentioned Jason Wright yourself. You're a Black American. I'm always aware of the fact that, um, for example, if I'm talking about women's issues, it's often to a room full of women. I understand that you bring personal experience to this, but 
give me some sense as to how do you engage people who feel like it's it's an issue that someone else has. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but uh, well, I understood. Look, it's it's a it's a it's a really important question. I fundamentally believe that we we will have to, given the resource allocations that basically sit at the root of why we're having this discussion, we have to engage and activate allies and the broader community if we're going to address these issues. It goes back, though, to where we started this discussion. If you are not moved by the moral imperative, by the way, I think many people are moved by the moral imperative, the more we bring transparency to the level of disparity, then we hope that you will be moved by the economic imperative. And there are really two two sides to that coin. The first is we know looking across the world that social cohesion is a part of what underpins economic stability. We also know that economic disparity threatens social cohesion. And so we always need to be thinking about that level of disparity in society, not just with Black Americans, but in general. And so that's one reason to be thinking about it. And then the other side of that coin is what I mentioned earlier. There's $1.5 trillion a year of GDP at stake that we'll all benefit from in getting this right. And so regardless of what moves you to to listen and to and to be curious about this topic, there is, I think, a comprehensive set of reasons that I'm confident will will push people to action. It's about trust. It's about faith. It's that the government has your back. Where are we on that front? I think there's a huge opportunity to rebuild and regain the trust of Black Americans. I'll spare the long history lesson of how that trust was eroded, mm-hmm. whether it was what happened with the Freedmen's Bank or you know, what 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 happened with redlining in America uh, with respect to the housing market, many, many things that we could point to. But now is an opportunity, particularly for the private sector, to lean into gaining trust in a win-win situation. Commercially viable products and services that Black Americans need and want, and doing it in a way that does not extract and is not exploitative, but that creates a feedback loop of customer loyalty that also helps to build and sustain wealth over time that will benefit all of us. And so there is a lot of work to do, I think, in particular uh, with respect to the healthcare sector, as well as the financial services industry. And I think many companies are starting to understand, and and the dialogues are shifting. I've talked to several banks over the last six months, as well as uh, companies involved in the healthcare space broadly. And there is this recognition of the tremendous amount of work to be done, but also the huge opportunity that exists if we get this right. Two years, three years from now, what will success look like for you in this realm? It's a great question. And I don't know, honestly, with all the humility that is appropriate for this topic, how to think about the, t- the time increments, right? whether it's a year or 18 months or two years. And people say, well, can the gap be closed in 10 years? And uh, I'm not, I don't have a crystal ball. So I won't, I won't try to be too precise. But what I will say is that if we look back a year or 18 months from now 
at many of at the billions and billions and billions of dollars that have been announced and committed concerning this racial justice moment that we're in right now, that we will have a handful of use cases that have been highly successful by all accounts that we can use, because not everything is going to work and not everything is going to be effective, but that we can use to roll out and scale up and continue to have impact. That, that's my hope and aspiration in this moment. Great. Well, I hope and aspire to that too. Shelley, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much. That was Shelley Stewart in the private equity practice of McKinsey and now leader in the McKinsey Institute for Black Economic Mobility. I'm Diane Brady. Thanks very much for listening. See you next time. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.